Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to another edition of Return to the Word Radio with Bible teacher Mark Fontecchio. Advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now with today's message, here is our teacher. Well, so far in our study of Acts chapter 7, Stephen had demonstrated from the Old Testament that the Jews were doing exactly what they did best, rejecting the men that God had sent to redeem them. These obstinate men had demonstrated once again their lack of redemption because what had they just done? They'd murdered the just one. Mordecai Ham. If you don't know the name, he was an evangelist from Kentucky in the early 1900s. Now Mordecai, he was not one that bowed down to the political correctness that had infiltrated the church back then. This was a committed man, a passionate man, and at times he was known for being a little bit blunt. When he came to town to hold an evangelistic campaign, he would actually spend his time seeking out the lost people. He would go around trying to find them, insisting that he would be brought to the worst sinners in any given town. Well, one time, a non-believer actually hid in a cornfield just to avoid Mordecai, just to avoid being confronted with the gospel of Jesus Christ. But good old Mordecai, he tracked him down. And standing in this cornfield, the man, the man asked Mordecai what his intentions were. In an effort to get the man's attention, Mordecai responded that he was going to pray that God would kill him. Well, the man began to protest right away about this. He said, hey, you can't do that. And then Mordecai assured him, he said, it shouldn't bother you since you don't believe in God anyway. But if Mordecai was right and there is a God, then what should be the penalty for a man who trains up his family to not believe in God, to not believe that Jesus is the Christ? Because such a man was actually eating his entire family down the path to hell. Well, this professed atheist, he actually began to beg at this point. He began to beg that Mordecai would not pray for his death. And having made his point, Mordecai began to pray for the man's salvation. And on the last night of their evangelistic crusade, this man and his family came to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. We see another man in Scripture this morning, in Acts chapter 7, forced into a position where he had to speak some very difficult words to those who had denied Christ. Go back in your Bibles with me, if you would, to verses 51 and 52 from last week in Acts chapter 7. Let's remember what it says here. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, of whom you have now become the betrayers and murderers. You see, Stephen was not ashamed of his Savior. 
He had shown them from the Old Testament that the Jews continued to do exactly what they did best. They continued to reject the men that God had sent to redeem them. They had murdered the just one. Pick it up with verse 54. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed at him with their teeth. I don't think Stephen was finished. I really don't. I don't think he was finished. I think if they would have allowed him to continue, Stephen would have shared about faith, about trust in the living Savior. But they cut him off because they didn't want to hear the truth. They were convicted by the Spirit of God. But they were like a pack of wild animals at this point, is the image that the Word of God gives to us. A pack of wild animals that were out of control because the message of Jesus Christ, it offends people. People don't want to hear that their sin makes them guilty before God. People don't want to hear that they need to humble themselves before God. People don't want to hear that there's only one way to heaven and that the path that they are on, it's not it. Now these men, they were so filled with anger that they ground their teeth wanting to kill Stephen. You almost can picture them, if you will, shouting him down, waving their fists at him. That's the implication in the text. Verse 55, there's some amazing words in our next few verses. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Understand that this was a work of God. God chose to reveal this to Stephen. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God. Now, other men in the Bible had this privilege. They received visions of God's glory. Just to name a few places, Ezekiel 1, 2 Corinthians 12, and Revelation 1. But take a look with me at Isaiah chapter 6. Read this with me if you would. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And then notice down in verse 5. So I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, the teaching of the Word of God is that when great men of faith, no matter how much we esteem them, no matter how high we think of these men, men like Isaiah, Ezekiel, the apostles John and Paul, when they witnessed the glory of God, they were completely overwhelmed. They were overwhelmed at the holiness of God. And they were totally aware of the sin that was present in their own lives. The glory of God, it's greater than we know. The glory of God, it humbles men. Now remember, Sadducees, they did not accept the prophets as the word of God. 
But the Pharisees on the council, they did. They accepted the prophets of the Old Testament as inspired by God. And so follow what I'm saying here this morning. Any Hellenist or Greek-speaking Jew that was there, like the Apostle Paul, still known at this point as Saul, they would have followed the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, which included the prophets. And so what I'm telling you is this, that for those men, Stephen's claim of a vision of the glory of God, it would have brought to mind both Ezekiel and Isaiah. It should have caused these men to recognize that what Stephen was claiming about the Christ at the right hand of the Father was very consistent with the Old Testament prophets. In Luke 22, you may remember that Jesus had been arrested And he was now standing before this same group of men, this same council as that of Stephen. They asked Jesus if he was claiming to be the Christ. And records in Luke that Jesus told them, Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. But then notice how they responded at that time. They said, Are you then the Son of God? So he said to them, you rightly say that I am. And they said, what further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. You see what Jesus himself spoke to these men. And what Stephen testifies now that he saw, this was all considered to be blasphemy. You couldn't say these things. To say that Jesus was at the right hand of God was to say that Jesus was co-equal with God. Both Jesus and Stephen were proclaiming that Jesus was more than just a man. He was so much more. Jesus is fully God. But more than this, what does it mean to be sitting at the right hand of God? It means that Jesus would be sitting on the throne of the universe as the creator of all men. And once the Jews in Luke 22 heard this, they had no more need of witnesses because they had heard it with their own ears. They had heard for themselves Jesus make the undeniable claim that he's God. Matthew 26 and Mark 14, they show us that they'd already agreed beforehand that the penalty for Christ would be death. And Christ had told them that he was going to go to the right hand of the Father. So back in our text in Acts, what we're actually seeing is Stephen is telling these men that he now sees the fulfillment of what Christ had said. He sees the fulfillment of it. He could see the living Messiah, Jesus Christ, at the right hand of the Father. In verse 56... Stephen proclaimed that he saw the Son of Man. Now this was a title, if you're familiar with the scriptures, this was a title that Christ often used of himself. This was a clear messianic title. Think with me what this would have meant to the Jewish people. If you remember, Daniel chapter 7 contains one of the great visions that Daniel, the prophet Daniel, received. Take a look what we read in Daniel chapter 7 verse 13. And notice the wording as we go through this. I was watching in the night visions and behold, one like the being son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the ancient of days and they brought him near before him. 
Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. Now the Ancient of Days, that's clearly a reference to God the Father. The Son of Man is a clear reference to the Christ. In the context of this chapter in Daniel 7, it teaches us that this is taking place at the end of the tribulation. With God the Father giving to the Messiah, God the Son, the eternal kingdom that was actually promised to the Son in Psalm 2, verse 8. So, Jesus, both fully God, fully man, not part God and part man, fully God, fully man. And the reference to the Son of Man is a reference to God incarnate. You know, all throughout the Gospels, in Matthew 16, Matthew 19, Matthew 26, we see Jesus referring to himself over and over again by this title, identifying himself as the Son of Man. Now, one more passage before we head back to Acts. We just saw in Luke 22, Jesus stood before the council. He identified himself as the Son of Man. And their immediate question was, was he saying he was the Son of God? Not just man, but was he saying he was God? And his response, if you remember, was, you rightly say that I am. And now, in Matthew 26, this was shortly after Christ was arrested. He was taken before the council, and notice, it says, but Jesus kept silent. And the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus was taking this right from the passage we just looked at in Daniel chapter 7. Notice the reaction of the high priest. Then the high priest tore his clothes, saying, He has spoken blasphemy. What further need do we have of witnesses? Look now, you have heard his blasphemy. It was understood. They got the point that Christ is both the Son of Man and the Son of God. So make your way now back to our passage in Acts and think of the anger that this council already had at this point for Stephen. Stephen had already declared that Jesus is the Messiah. And now Stephen was telling them in verse 56 of your text that he could look up and he could see the Son of Man, Jesus the Christ, standing at the right hand of the Father. Stephen identified Jesus as the Son of Man. Linking Jesus back to the Messiah spoken of in Daniel 7. The Messiah that has given dominion over all the people of the world. The message sent to this council of men, they may have accused and they may have condemned Jesus of Nazareth, but it is Jesus that they will stand before as they face their own judgment. Stephen, if you think with me, in his final moments of life, he was putting the Sanhedrin on notice that the temple worship of the past, it was obsolete. Because access to the immediate presence of God was available now to all through the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's take a look at the reaction now from the Sanhedrin in verse 57. Then they cried out with a loud voice, 
stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Follow this closely. Stephen had the vision of God. He could see Christ. But the other men couldn't. The men on the council could not see God. And so what do you do at this point if you're them? You have two options if you're the Sanhedrin. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and believe the message. Or you can get angry. Angry because your entire life and your entire system of belief was being challenged. And so therefore, Stephen must have been lying. Stephen must have been a heretic that needed to die because this was blasphemy. To stand before the Sanhedrin and elevate the name of Jesus to equality with that of Yahweh, that was just blasphemy to these Jews. So the shouts of these men in the text, they drowned out the words of Stephen, you know, like a bunch of little kids, really, covering up their ears. They actually covered up their ears so they wouldn't hear the words of Stephen. And here we have Stephen with his eyes fixed on Jesus, fixed on the glory of God and the professional religious experts of the day could not control their anger long enough to keep themselves from killing an innocent man. They ran at him all at once. Hatred always unites. Hatred unites. Love should unite, but hatred unites. And these men were united by their hatred for Christ. And here is how they would actually do this back then. Deuteronomy 17 taught that the witness to a crime was to be the first one to cast a stone. This was a measure of protection. You wanted this. This was to help to protect the people from men that would lie about what another person had done. If you knew that a witness against someone would have to be the first one to start throwing stones, it would give you a little bit of a pause before you accuse someone of something. And so here's what they would do. Just before they would arrive at the place of the stoning, the condemned person was given a chance to confess, to make his peace with God. The condemned person was then placed 10 or 12 feet above the actual place where they would die, on a little cliff or an embankment, or sometimes they would use a pit for this purpose. And one of the witnesses of the accused that accused the person of a sin or a crime would come behind the person and just push him, push him right over the edge so he fell face forward down onto the ground below. It was the hope that the fall would be enough to kill the person. But if they didn't die, if they survived the fall, then they would turn him over, making sure his back was facing down, and a witness of the crimes would actually push a boulder onto him. They would get the largest stone that they could handle, and they would roll it down on the man from the cliff up above. And if you survived all of this, then a second witness would come forward and would roll a boulder onto him. And if you were still alive at that point, then the people would join in with the stoning until the person was dead. But what we don't see in Acts is this long, drawn-out procedure. We see men wanting to kill Stephen as quick as possible. You know, according to the Jews, 
Stephen was a heretic. He needed to die as quickly as possible. According to the letter of the law, according to the Roman law, they should have waited to receive permission from the Roman government. And the Jews even stated this in John 18 when they told Pilate that they didn't have the authority to put Jesus to death. And according to their own laws, they were supposed to wait a day before they killed someone. None of that mattered here. None of it mattered. Luke tells us they took him out of the city, rushing him along to the place of execution with this violent mob shouting at him. Notice something with me in the text. Luke has a way, if you study Luke for very long, Luke has a way of introducing us to people who will become important later on. And we see this, don't we, in verse 58? The witnesses took off their outer garments and laid them down at the feet of Saul. You see, there was in that mob a man who would go on to carry the torch of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it is here that Stephen's and Saul's paths, they meet, they intersect. The death of Stephen, you know, if you were in the church back then, the death of Stephen, that had to seem like such a waste. It would be like a missionary going off and training for years and years, and then they go and die. It seemed like a waste. But this flicker of a witness by Stephen, it became some of the first seeds of the gospel of Christ in the life of the apostle Paul. So they took their garments off to give them the greater freedom to be able to cast those stones and throw those rocks. We're going to see that Stephen was kneeling. Stephen was praying. So instead of rolling boulders on him like they usually did, the picture that the Word of God gives to us is of these men pelting Stephen with these stones. The witnesses would have been the ones to knock Stephen down. And they would have been the ones to cast the first stones They placed their outer garments at the feet of Saul. Saul had authority here. He had a role to play in the death of Stephen. And many, many more Christians would suffer under his hand. But here's what I love about Stephen. He had such a deep passion for Christ that he wanted to echo the words of his Savior as he faced his own death. In verse 59, he was calling on God saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. That should remind us of the words of Christ on the cross. Because in Luke 23, right before his own death, Jesus cried out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. These words are actually a part of a Jewish prayer that the children were taught to pray at bedtime every single night. It was based on Psalm 31. Listen to verse 5 of that psalm. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. You see, Stephen, he had faith. Stephen had trust. Because in the final moment of life, he committed himself not just to the Hebrew God, but what does verse 59 tell us? He committed himself to the Lord Jesus. Stephen, even in his last words, expressed his trust that Jesus is more than a man. He is God the Son. So take a look at verse 60. I believe these are some of the most moving words in the entire Bible. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And again, the words of Christ on the cross come to mind when he said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. 
Now Luke tells us that Stephen fell asleep. Think of the great assurance Stephen had when he died. He died with a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ at the right hand of God the Father, still fresh, still present in his mind. Stephen was immediately ushered into the presence of God. Now the opening words here of chapter 8, notice them with me. Now Saul was consenting to his death. Saul from Tarsus, a Hellenist Jew, meaning as a young rabbi in Jerusalem, it is likely he attended the same synagogue with Stephen. Stephen might have silenced Saul back in chapter 6. Saul understood the threat. Saul understood that if the Christian faith continued to spread, it would undermine the authority of the Sanhedrin because the Sanhedrin had rejected this man, Jesus, as the Messiah. Saul gave his approval to the murder of Stephen. He stood as a witness to the events. Saul was blinded to the truth of Christ. But he would go on to write many, many years later that he had obtained mercy. Why? Because he did it with ignorance. He did it in unbelief. So notice how the persecution intensifies in Acts in the second half of the verse. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So now we see this storm of persecution. And thousands of Christians were forced to flee from Jerusalem, all except the apostles. The Jews desperately wanted to end end the Christian faith. But the persecution forced the message of the gospel to spread. Persecution, it purifies the church, doesn't it? Persecution, it strengthens the church of Christ. If you go back to the gospels, what did the... What had the disciples been told by the Lord himself? He had told them to go into all the world and preach the gospel. But what was the church doing? It was huddled up in Jerusalem. The church really wasn't moving out from Jerusalem. It huddled up there. And so the Lord allowed them to be scattered. In verse 2, there's a subtle act of courage in verse 2. Jewish laws forbid making much of a fuss at a funeral for a condemned criminal back then. You couldn't make much of a fuss for a condemned criminal. These men, these devout men, we are told, they stood up and they gave Stephen a proper burial, even with the persecution. They wept. They cried when someone passed. You've seen those images of people just in that Middle East culture weeping and wailing when someone passes These believers were not afraid to show their grief, not hiding their act of courage. But Saul, Saul wasn't done. Pick it up with verse 3. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Kind of like a thrashing wild animal, if you will. Saul made havoc of the church. Saul tore apart the church the best he could. A hot-headed zealot on a seek-and-destroy mission, going from house to house, dragging people out of their homes. In chapter 9, Luke records that Saul was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And it isn't until Saul was converted that Luke was actually able to record that all the churches of 
Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace. And so the church scattered, preaching the word of God as they went. And this, this really, right here, began the worldwide witness of the church. The late Dr. Criswell, pastor of First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas, he spoke about a time where he was on an airplane, and he found himself seated next to a very famous and well-known theologian. And this man, this theologian, was a great person of the faith, well-respected. And so, quite naturally, as a pastor, Dr. Criswell, what did he want to do? Well, he wanted to talk to the man on the plane about the Lord and about the great doctrines of the faith and just pick his brain and get to have a good old theological discussion. But instead, the man shared with Dr. Criswell how he had recently lost his little boy to a death that took the family completely off guard. You see, this little boy had come home from school with a fever. And it happens all the time. As a parent, you see this, so you don't get too excited. And he said that they thought it was just one of those bugs that go around, especially how it is in the fall. You catch a bug and you just get used to it. But it turns out it was meningitis. And the doctors explained that they couldn't help save this little boy. He would actually die in a few days. And so this great theologian, this seminary professor with a deep passion and a deep love for his son. He dedicated himself to sitting at the bedside of his dying son, just waiting day after day for death to come. It was the middle of the day and the little boy was starting to lose his strength. His vision was beginning to weaken and his thinking was getting clouded. And the little boy looked at his father and said, Daddy, Daddy, it's getting dark, isn't it? The professor said to his son, Yes, son, it's getting, it's getting dark. It's getting very dark. Because the man knew that it was a dark hour for him. And with the boy's brain slowly failing, everything to him would start to look dark. And then the boy looked up one last time and said, Daddy, I guess it's time for me to go to sleep, isn't it? And the man looked back and he said to his son, Yes, son, it's time for you to go to sleep. And the professor then said that the little boy had a way of fixing his pillow just right before he went to sleep. That part melts my heart because Doodles does the same thing. So with his last little bit of his strength, the boy, he fixed his pillow just how he wanted it. He laid down his head on his hands, and then he said, Good night, Daddy. I'll see you in the morning. With those last few words, the little boy faced his own death. The professor didn't say much to more after that. He just looked out the window for a long, long time. Same tears running down his face that some of us have this morning, including myself. I hate death. I hate death. I hate what sin does to the body. I hate what it's doing to some of you, and I hate what sin, and just not even our personal sin, but the sin nature, how it's affected these bodies. Death is never easy. Palmer community has recently gone through a tragedy where five little children passed. It's even more difficult when it's the loss of a child, isn't it? 
It's times like this that I'll tell you it challenges our faith to become more than just academic. It makes us really search our souls. It makes us really question, what do we believe? Because how we handle death, how we face our death, it speaks to what we believe. Psalm 116, a beautiful verse, one you want to memorize and jot down. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Now hear me, listen to this. Here's what this means. It means for those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior, he protects, he preserves their life on earth so that we may in turn serve him. But when our time is done, he welcomes us into his presence at the time of our death. You know, facing death, it can be terrifying, but gazing past death to the presence of Jesus, waiting for the believer, Jesus waiting for the believer in Christ, this is the hope that dissolves the fear. We have the opportunity, and you don't hear this taught on much, but we have the opportunity to glorify God even when we die in the face of death. Boldly declaring our confidence that we're going to spend all of eternity with our Savior. Paul was able to say to Timothy in the closing days of his life, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have what? Kept the faith. I believe that Stephen was just such a man. A man that had made the decision long before his own death that he would follow his Savior all the way to the end. Death had lost its sting. Stephen was welcomed home to be with his Savior. Ask God to help us. To help us be bold in our witness for Christ. Ask Him to help us to cast off the sins and all the things in life that keep us from living for Him. The pride. The fear. Anything that stands in our way of intentionally living for Jesus Christ. Because His grace, His love is sufficient. I challenge you to finish the race. Keep the faith, because to live is Christ, and to die is gain. The rapture, Israel, the tribulation, the kingdom of God, the millennium, the judgment seat of Christ, the battle of Armageddon. These are just some of the topics that we cover in our book, What Lies Ahead. We wanted to write a book that was easy to understand, that would give a good, solid overview of the end times. You can find it on our website, returntotheword.com. That book again is What Lies Ahead. And if you've read it, leave us a review on Amazon. It helps us. It helps us to tell others about this study of God's plan for the end times. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time on Return to the Word. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com.
or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.